Hello, and welcome to The Church's Radical Reform. My name is Christopher Lamb, and this is a podcast exploring the Synod, the extraordinary attempt by Pope Francis to reform the Catholic Church. Now, the Synod process is not simply about what is going on in the Catholic Church. It's also been noticed by Christians from across the world. A recent gathering in Durham in the north of England brought together Christian leaders and scholars to discuss what synodal reform looks like in their denominations and what the Catholic Church can learn from other churches. There was a palpable sense among those taking part that the synod process has the potential to bring all Christians together in new ways. I spoke to one of the participants in Durham, Neil Hudson, who is a Pentecostalist pastor from the north of England. He's not the average person you would expect at a Catholic gathering. But in this episode, He tells me why he thinks the synod process in the Catholic Church is so important. He talks about overcoming a mentality that somehow the churches are all in a state of chronic decline. Of course, the Pentecostalist churches are growing. And he explains why Pope Francis is seen as a leader for Pentecostalist and charismatic Christians. Well, Neil Hudson, thank you very much uh, for joining me on this podcast. You are the uh, leader of a Pentecostalist church, the Salford Ellen Church in the northwest of England. You've been um, teacher and leader in the Pentecostal church for over 25 years. It's great to have you uh, for this discussion because we're going to talk about the synod process, but to hear your perspective as someone from not involved in the Catholic Church, uh, but who has been recently at a major gathering in Durham, which brought together different Christian leaders to discuss the concept of synodality or the synodal reform of the Catholic Church. And I'm just interested, you know, what, what, what made you want to go along to an event like that? You know something which is which seems to be very much about the Catholic Church, but clearly the the synod is is getting attention from from the from from all Christians. Is is that fair to say? Yeah, I mean, I the reason I went along was because I was asked to do so by my denomination as part of the um, small delegation of other Pentecostals from the UK. So you know there were the different um, groupings of uh, various denominations. So there was, you know, the Quakers, the Methodists, the Anglicans, Baptists, uh, URC, and then a group of Pentecostals. So I was was requested to go, but I was interested to be there. Um, I suppose the idea uh, that it was wrapped around, which was receptive ecumenism, that idea of what can we learn from one another that will help us with our own weaknesses, which is a very interesting way of thinking about ecumenical relationships allowed me to go and not only listen to the process that's happening within the Catholic Church, but also then to reflect on some of the uh, input and the lessons learned along the way about how do we discern the the voice of God or the Spirit at work amongst us. Um, meant I could listen on a number of different levels. I was listening to the process within the Catholic Church, but I was also listening for well, what might be helpful within my own tradition, really. In the spirit of receptive ecumenism and listening to other traditions, can you tell me a little bit about the Pentecostal Church in, in the UK uh, and how you got involved? 
the, the Pentecostal movement in the UK began um, around 1907, um, interestingly through the ministry of an Anglican priest up in the northeast of England in Sunderland. Um, and it began as an ecumenical move of the spirit, really. Um, at that time, a number of people were just having new experiences of the Holy Spirit. They were Their faith was being renewed and revitalized, but they were from all of the traditions we've just mentioned and more. Um, and it was only um, after a few years where some of these people were being essentially not welcome back into their own church traditions because of the experience they've had of speaking in tongues, of, um, I suppose, an urgent missiology as well, um, that they started to establish their own small um, churches uh, of, of like-minded people. And um, over time, over the hundred years, uh, then um, there were different denominations under that Pentecostal umbrella. My own journey into Pentecostalism happened, I suppose, in some similar way. My family grew up in the Salvation Army. We were um, long part of that um, group of Christians. Um, but when I was in my teenage years, my parents had an experience of the Holy Spirit where they spoke in tongues, etc. And um, the Salvation Army at that time, this is in the 1970s at that time, weren't able to accommodate that. Uh, within their own tradition. And so my parents, who had been church leaders within the Salvation Army, were asked to leave or asked to stop talking about this experience. And so um, we found our way through to a Pentecostal church in town where we lived who welcomed us. And um, we found a, a group of people that uh, we were able to uh, identify with as kind of my own tradition. So interestingly, as it began, I came from a different tradition into a new tradition because of an experience of uh, a spiritual experience. And you look at the Pentecostal churches in the UK and they seem to be bucking the trend um, when it comes to numbers and times when it comes to attracting people mm. to church. What's your uh, take on that? I think there's two things. I think that I think. I'd want to be sanguine about it. I'd want to say that some of the um, some of the growth has come from uh, migration and um, from people from you know uh, Europe, but also from the African continent coming and and being part of our churches. So I think I'd want to be careful about um, growth simply being uh, missional. Uh, but having said that, we've been very accepting of people from different continents. I think the other thing though is that at the heart of Pentecostalism and it's been there from the beginning is an urgent missiology um, a sense that um, we've been called by God to demonstrate and to proclaim the salvation that comes in Jesus so there's a sort of a, a, a restlessness within our own spirituality which isn't always <laughs> helpful but the restlessness is we want people to understand the love that God has for them. We want people to understand the salvation that's in Christ. And we want people to understand the significance of belonging to a community of God's people. So we're not naturally at ease with a holy huddle. We long for people to be a part of us. And so therefore we will structure ourselves so that people can 
belong to us relatively easily. We try and reduce the uh, the barriers. Yeah. So it's a church or an idea of the church that is constantly in mission um, rather than sitting sitting back um, and accepting decline. And are you concerned when you see some churches almost accepting it's inevitable that there's going to be a, a decline or, you know, that, that, that it's just... That, that, that there's going to be a collapse in the numbers is, is is that a concern to you yeah but to my pentecostal ears it sounds too defeatist i find i find it very strange to think that i might be a leader or a minister within the church who would easily accept that um the idea that the congregation is simply growing older is shrinking in size and and, and this might sound really hard, but, and that we're doing nothing about it. At the very least, um, we would be urged to pray that God would turn the situation around for us. But we would also be actively seeking to encourage people to engage with the gospel. Because I suppose at the end of the day, what we believe is that God is still seeking after people, and people are still seeking after God. And we've got our role to play as part of that. So one of the things that Pope Francis has emphasized that a more synodal church is like is a, is a more missionary church. Mm. Yet there has been an impression that the synod or synodality is about meetings and is kind of inward looking. What's your understanding of a, of a more synodal church uh, from from the experience that you had in Durham and more broadly? Yeah, I whenever you uh, sort of parachuted into the middle of a conversation that's been going on for quite a while it can take you a, a you know a little while to to find your bearings within it um i suppose um my concern about what's happening would be if it grinds into the sand of committee meetings of consultations that go on forever but don't actually get anywhere the other thing I, I i wondered about was the extent to which the the conversation that happens within clergy and those closest to ministry or the vocations within the church to what extent does that reflect the life of the worshiping catholic uh in congregations in other words are we talking about things that are of real significance so i think again with my pentecostal eyes i'd want to say what's the relationship between all the conversations about the gathered church the mm -hmm. synodal church and the scattered experience of the church will this process of synodality will it equip people to be more confident about faith more imaginative about how they can uh, testify how they can give bear witness to jesus in the offices, in the schools, in the colleges, or wherever they might be this time in the week. So I think those would be some of my questions. I think there is a danger that those of us who are employed within the church or called to a church ministry can end up talking about things that are of little significance to those who live their lives in a different part of the world. Do you think the Synod has the potential to ensure the Catholic Church can be in a state of mission 
and can go out. Do you detect that from, from what you've seen so far? Yeah, all of our features are dependent upon the ongoing life of, of God with us, the, the, the deep awareness of his presence and, and the power of the Spirit. So our structures don't cause growth. That, I think that's really important. Um, but I do think that what I heard being expressed and, and, and what I've understood about what's happening in the Catholic Church has to be, to my mind at least, reflective of the gospel. And I think it is. I think it does reflect the heart of Jesus. I think it does reflect the something closer to the book of Acts and the work of the Spirit in the lives of folks at that time. So to that end, I would think, yes, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. That sense that what we're trying to do is align ourselves with who we are created to be and who God would want us to be for the sake of the world. It's quite striking to hear someone from your position saying that. Um, and I think there may be many people who would say, well, um, Pentecostal churches and the Catholic Church couldn't be further apart when it comes to um, living out you know, their experience of church. But the figure of Pope Francis is crucial in all, in all of this because... As you've mentioned to me in, in, in other conversations, Pope Francis is someone who has been able to connect with Pentecostal Christians. Could you say a little bit more about that? You know, the reality is that a generation ago, a Pentecostal would never have gone to the event in Durham. That is simply the case. And I, I've thought a lot over the years about why that might have been. And I understand um, some of that uh, resistance. Some of it was theological the different doctrines that we might hold to. But I think Pentecostals in the UK have often been conservatives, small C and sometimes large C, and therefore um, less open to people in other traditions. However, when we hear the Pope speak and when we, when we watch on social media and other outlets, um, the Pope bringing together people from the Pentecostal charismatic tradition, I think we see someone who we share common language and we share common concern and we share common hope with. So in many ways, perhaps, I, I, I can't speak for previous generation, but certainly in, in my generation, this Pope seems to speak the language that would not be out of place within a, in a Pentecostal setting. One of the things that Pentecostals uh, have in their DNA from the earliest days is a sense of um, wanting to be renewed. So when the Pope is praying and, and calling for that to be the case amongst the Catholic tradition, we understand that and we would say amen. He sounds like one of us at times. <laughs> it is striking, I think, when I've, when I've seen Francis in action, um, how he is a kind of charismatic pope. I mean, charismatic, not just in the sense we use for a leader, but charismatic in the sense of being in within that tradition. When it comes to Christian unity, it does feel that the, the, the figure of the pope seems to be key. Um, the figure of the pope in the past would have been a great stumbling block um, for Christians mm. or, uh, outside the Catholic Church. But it seems today that perhaps the papacy, particularly under Francis, could have 
the potential to unite uh, Christians. Do you see that? Does the papacy have a a role in trying to bring all Christians together, do you think? How, how would that work from the Pentecostal side? I think there's a new generation who go, for the sake of, if we're thinking locally, for the sake of a town or a city, um, Christians have to unite in their response to poverty, in their response to need, in their response to local government. And you, no one church or no one church tradition can do it alone. So there's a real grassroots movement of unity that's on the ground in towns and cities. People of all traditions praying together and uh, seeking to represent the church to local government or even in some cases to central government. So I think when unity is based around common causes of mission, I think actually we have um, that there's real room to to work together. I think the other the other role the the papacy play, and I think it's also the true in the UK for the Archbishop of Canterbury, is that they're almost the establishment voices. So if the BBC want to know what the church thinks, they will go to uh, people like that or or to to get a, a position. So for Pentecostals who can feel on the outskirts of that. To hear someone in those positions to be able to speak in the name of Jesus around issues of the gospel and the implications of the gospel enables us to to have a strength because it's out in the public, um, uh, the, the public marketplace, as it were. So I think those two things: the idea of unity for the sake of mission that's grassroots up, but then the voice of the established churches, and I use that advisedly. But the churches that that have the voice of the public marketplace speaking for the gospel is of real significance to Pentecostals, actually. Because yes. that's often a, a sphere we don't get access to. Yeah, and when they hear a leader in the public eye, Christian in the public eye, speaking a language that they can relate to or they can say amen to, yeah, uh, that can have a powerful effect. Uh, absolutely yes a- absolutely yeah that idea of you know you hear the pope on the radio while you're washing up saying something that you know is fantastic and you go amen i mean i mean maybe that's the idea of where unity is rather than us all trying to certainly not have a, un- a, 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 a you know we we struggle together with uh physical expressions of united worship for example but actually united witness now that's a whole different matter isn't it and yep. surely that's possible. Absolutely. Um, now, uh, another question I had um, for you was about the fact that there are many Catholics, or we could say ex-Catholics, who join Pentecostal and Charismatic churches, mm. and we see that, I think, seen in the UK, but also very much in Latin America in the Pope's own. Mm. Um, given that phenomenon what would you say Catholic Church should learn or could learn from that um, yeah. I'm, I'm not saying it's about you know competing for numbers and you know no no I suppose the best way I can answer that is speaking as a local pastor because in my own congregation there are people who come from your tradition 
and, and we've never set out, you know, they, they've, they've found us rather than the other way around. But what they say to me is the difference is, I suppose, is the engagement of the whole person. So whereas they might have felt that for them within the Catholic tradition, their experience was quite cerebral and uh, distant, they come into a context whereby, you know, Pentecostal tradition is about, you know, hopefully it is about thinking, but it's also about feeling, it's about action, it's about that very real sense of belonging to a community. Let me give you an example of what I mean. Um, my local church, we uh, for many years have shared um, the two buildings that are within the Angli Anglican tradition. And in the first one we shared, um, there was the, 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 the folks from the Church of England had a notice up, uh, a poster up that said, uh, talk to God before Mass and talk to one another after Mass. And so the idea was that, you know, that they would come in and they'd be quiet before God and then only connect with other people afterwards. That is, that is very different within our circles. Within our circles, it would be you come and you join in with this community who know you, who hug you, who welcome you in, and together we worship. And then afterwards, we also do that act of fellowship. So I think it's, I think it was, for me, it was just that, one of those elements of, well, what's the difference between us? And I think for Pentecostals, what we've been able to do is help people understand how faith doesn't just make sense of a worldview and the way we see things, but also the way we feel about things. And maybe part of our own renewal has been, for example, with music, you know, we've embraced more contemporary forms of music. And in some to some people's ears, some Pentecostal people who are older, perhaps they don't like it as much. But actually what it does is it allows people to connect a, 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 a number of different levels. That's what people tell me in my local church anyway. That's fascinating. Um, final question. Um, what would you say to those um, Catholics or perhaps Christians and other denominations who are struggling with decline, with falling numbers, with that sense of, you could say, desolation um, that, that I think many in the church, particularly in Northern Europe, feel, experience. What would you say to them, uh, or perhaps advice or reflection or, or whatever you, you, you want to say, what would you say to them uh, to give them perhaps a, a sense of how a more synodal church can can respond to the to, to the sense of desolation, or how a church which is more missionary can can respond to that to that situation? Yeah, can I tell you a story about uh, something that happened this Sunday? Um, so I I explained to you before that my my local Pentecostal church. Um, we worship in a Church of England building. So they worship at 9.30 and we worship at 11.30. Uh, two very different styles of, of worship. But I, I, I go to the 9.30 service as a participant. I have done for, for quite a few years. And on Sunday morning, 
when I went into my pew, and like all good Anglicans, I've had my own pew that I sit in each week. Um, but uh, someone slipped in behind me. It was a young guy. And uh, so I turned to say hello to him before the service began, introduce myself. And I asked him, do you know your way around church? Have you been to church before? He said, no, not really. Um, and I, so I talked him through the service book to let him know that things in bold, we all say together, etc., and what to expect and, and what happens during the time of communion and how that works and, and all the rest of it. And uh, helped him to find the, the numbers, you know, the, the, the hymns that we were singing. At the end of the service, I, I turned back to him and uh, he was very grateful for the service. He, he, he'd really appreciated it. And so I asked him, why, why did you come to church this morning? And he said, well, I work in the hospital next door. He said, and there's lots of things been going on in my life really recently that have not been that great. I'm not a churchgoer, but I spend a lot of time in the hospital chapel. And I was working all night last night. And I spent some time in the chapel and I thought, on my way home, I'll go to church. And so that's why I'm here this morning. And I think that little story of just one individual in my local church tells me a number of things. Number one is that in a declining context, then what we need to do is retain our belief that God is searching for people. So I don't know what's going on in that young guy's life, but there's clearly something in him that is actively searching after God to the extent that a young guy, probably in his 20s or early 30s, is willing to turn up in a church he doesn't know in order to worship. So I'm kind of wanting to say to Christians of every tradition that, that what has happened is if you think that it's only cradle Catholics or you know cradle Christians, whoever will stay in church, then actually you need to have a bigger view of what God's doing in the world. And he's drawing people to Jesus. It's what Jesus said he would do. When I'm lifted high, I will draw all people to myself. And I think he's still doing that. But secondly, it's having the appropriate confidence that says, when we come across those people, will you please try and help them fit in? Will you say hello to them? Will you explain how things work in your church? Will you not assume that they want to be anonymous? But will you build a relationship with them? And, um, and I think if those two things happen, we might be surprised by what God does amongst us. Confident in the, the God of the gospel, if you will, and confident in welcoming people, that gift of hospitality that we can uh, offer to the stranger amongst us so that they no longer feel the stranger. And I think that might might see some of our church change. Well, it also strikes me in that story about how, in a sense, your response was very synodal, in that you went to you went out to to meet the newcomer, and also listen to him, listen mm. to his story, and that I think is at the heart of the synodal journey. It seems, mm. yeah. So, um, well, Neil, thank you very much for your time and for sharing your insights. It's been absolutely fascinating uh, to hear them. And I've learned a lot. And I, I think everyone who listens to this podcast episode, I think will also get a lot from it. So thank you very much. Well, thanks, Chris. And, and you know, I just want to reiterate how 
um, interesting and stimulating it's been to be part of just a small part of this process and genuinely would want to to wish you God's blessing on all that's ahead thank you thank you for listening to this episode you can find the church's radical reform on Spotify and Apple podcasts so please subscribe so you don't miss future episodes you can also find previous episodes there This podcast series is sponsored by the Centre for Catholic Studies at the University of Durham in partnership with The Tablet. Thank you for listening.